Welcome back, listeners, and thank you for joining me again for this latest episode of the Power of Planning podcast. May is National Elder Law Month, so I'm dedicating this episode to a discussion of elder law topics. And this month, I feel like I am in the presence of greatness with my very (laughs) special guest, Marty Salt. Marty is a legendary broadcast journalist with a 40-year career in broadcast journalism, 29 of those at WFTV Channel 9. She covered major stories such as the first space shuttle launch and the space shuttle Challenger disaster. During her legendary career, she interviewed Presidents Gerald Ford and George W. Bush and many celebrities, including Oprah Winfrey, Lucille Ball, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Alex Trebek, Pat Sajak, and Dolly Parton. She won an Emmy Award for a special report on the toll stardom can take on child celebrities. One of the many highlights of her career, though, includes her Emmy Award-winning special, Blindsided, the reality of caring for aging parents, which was inspired by Marty's own personal experience as a caregiver to her elderly parents. And that's when I first met Marty and her Mm -hmm. sister Diane in 2015. Their father had just entered a nursing home and their mother was residing in an assisted living facility. And over the next few years, we worked together to navigate a variety of legal issues for their parents. So in planning this episode, Marty immediately came to mind because I know so many of you can relate to her experience as an adult caregiver child. I'm so honored to have her as my very special guest and really appreciate her willingness to share her story. So thank you, Marty, for joining me and for being so passionate about educating adult caregiver children about the topics we're going to discuss today. Well, thank you, Vanessa, for having me. It was wonderful to work with you. By the way, you did superior work. We it was was great. Um, I don't know how we would have navigated the whole process, frankly, without uh, your help. Um, and having an attorney who knows, you know, knows the ropes, knows what is going on and, and how to manage it all because it was overwhelming for us. And we thought we were organized. We were organized. We were, we were organized. And um, um, we felt, you know, reasonably intelligent. And, yes. But many times we thought, what do people do in, the, in managing, you know, these affairs um, when you haven't done it before? It's all new territory. Um, but anyway, it was during that time that uh, I was caring for my dad um, that we thought that I, and we were realizing things, you know, how things worked. And, right. you, and we didn't know. We didn't know. Um, and it was when they were in assisted living, once we got to that point, um, I said, you know, people need to know how this works, you know, how, how everything works re- regarding elder care. And that's when I thought um, I had the opportunity to be able to produce a program because I was at Channel 9 at the time. And so uh, we produced the two-part series, Blindsided, The Reality of Caring for Aging Parents. And that really was, out of 40 years of working, I mean, I got to do many things and, uh, you know, enjoyed, had fun, challenging opportunities, you know, all of that. But I have to say the most rewarding part of my career was being able to do that series um, because so many people came up to me afterward and still do and it came out in 2016 right um, but so many people came up to me and either they had 
dealt with the situation before and they said you were spot on in describing it uh, or they they hadn't yet uh, and um, yet you know we we think this is coming or people who said hey we went through this and wish we had had a tutorial if you will kind of like this just just to know what to expect and what to do and again how things work exactly um you just don't know you're just you know really we were very naive ignorant really about it all no i mean and everyone is in that same boat and there's so many people that are in that sandwich generation right where we're caring for our own families caring for our parents my mom's 79 my dad's 85 their health is declining every day the stats are that u.s news and world report said in november 2022 more than half of americans age 50 and up are helping an older adult yeah. manage tasks from household chores to medical care. And that will get, become more exactly. so as the population the ages. Yeah, exactly. So I thought we would just kind of talk through today and give additional tutorial mm-hmm. and insight on various topics related to legal issues facing seniors today. And I wanted to start with estate planning documents, right? And making sure that, and I've discussed this many times on this podcast before, but it's really important when it comes to elder law planning, because when you and Diane came to me, your parents had estate planning documents in place. Yes, they were, my my mom and dad were, you know, very responsible, had everything in order, thought everything had been taken care of, and it had, had, up to a point. But what changed was, and this was an aspect that we had never really considered as a family. I don't know, I guess we didn't see it with our grandparents. We just didn't have um, a front row seat to it before. The concept of long-term care that they would, I, I think they just always thought, you know, there will be a heart attack or maybe they're an illness and they'll be at home and pass away. And that, I guess that was the scenario. Right. Um, and so they had all their documents in place, you know, as far as wills and, and everything. Healthcare and trying, and, you know, they wanted to make sure that it was as easy on my sister and I, um, uh, on my sister and me, as possible, um, you know, try to avoid probate and just make everything as, uh, you know, I just remember that was an overwhelming concern. And they had made it that they way. Did. If things had transpired the way they were imagining. Right. But... What we didn't consider was the long-term care situation where they would be, you know, um, so impaired for a lengthy period of time. And that's exactly what happened with both of them. Yes. And, I, you know, to your point, my grandparents, they died relatively young by today's standards. Uh-huh. So I think really, truly, they didn't experience this with their parents. They weren't thinking. And long-term care insurance policies generally have been cost prohibitive for many mm-hmm. people. And I think they've been adverse to use them because it's like a use it or lose it situation. Uh-huh. But now they do have other options when that your parents didn't have. They're like hybrid policies Mm -hmm. where if you don't use the long-term care insurance, then it serves like a death benefit or a life insurance policy. But Mm -hmm. most people still don't do that. No, they don't. So, And the the critical thing with the estate planning that your parents had done, too, is they had that durable power of attorney. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we had to rely on in order for you and Diane to have the legal authority to do everything that you did with me and file everything with Medicaid Mm -hmm. like we're going to talk about today. So those 
those are just the primary basic documents. Right. right. And what I wanted to say, I was talking to my sister to review, you know, some of our experience before I came on. And, uh, and I know I have said this when I have talked on this subject before, our overarching theme to everybody out there is to have documents ahead of time yes know where they are if if you're the parent tell your children your adult children where they are if you're an adult child um ask your parents where they are where am i going to find this information um my dad you know this was totally unhigh tech but um he he was about 80 when he made out uh, just on a yellow piece of you know legal paper legal one paper. sheet it wasn't complex one sheet and he wrote out everything that we would need you know um every bank account the account number uh if there was a password involved that's um, great i didn't even realize he had done that oh yeah and and we relied on that piece of paper i that mean my sister i just talking this afternoon that you know again it wasn't digital it wasn't anything complex it was just on a piece of paper handwritten notes but it was the critical information that you had to have because you couldn't make anything happen without the without out that information and um but it was you know bank accounts numbers um title to the car you know where we would find that um they had pre-arranged their funerals and everything yes. so you know here's the funeral home number um they lived so long we ended up having to plan the funerals three times three different times we went through funeral planning three times because they you know kept on they <laughs> we're living a long time and things were changing right. the circumstances were changing but uh but prior to that he so my sister and i were discussing this he wrote out that piece of paper about when he was 80 and he said you know here's here's everything is in an envelope okay good dad you know and and we didn't need it for a few years um but uh prior to that he used to say okay if anything happens um all of the documents are in a briefcase under the bed <laughs> And it's just it's just so funny but i mean that's what you needed right you know and and you knew where to go we knew where to go to find the documents but when all of this process came around with you um that's what made it i, I mean i can't it, it, and there was still legwork involved right. for us still to do this wasn't easy this mm -hmm. was not an easy process no it was not for us um and, and as again as i said we were organized yes, and it were. still wasn't easy and there was a, a lot of legwork but um the documents were all every document we needed he had it in one spot in that briefcase and that's fantastic yeah that because is... then you weren't on the hunt and, and a search for, exactly. for stuff that you didn't even know where to find where to look and i wanted to ask you too kind of talking about residency decisions so the different options you know as we're dealing with our family members who are aging uh, number one goal is always aging in place uh -huh. right so they've got these vi the village movement mm -hmm. have you heard about this Not it started in beacon say, hill the village yeah unit in movement. 2001 the beacon hill area of boston there's 200 or more villages operating in the u.s another 250 in development we have one here called the neighbors network and it's basically a community of volunteers helping the elderly continue to stay in their homes as long as possible aging in place gracefully 
where they volunteer to go and help with the gardening or the grocery shopping, taking them to doctor's appointments, things of that nature. And with your membership, you get the opportunity to have access to vetted professionals who could help you with plumbing or yard work or whatever the case may be. That's, of course, the ideal situation, right? Aging at home, having home health care or respite care. There's adult daycare facilities. We have those in town as well. Then we get to the continuing care retirement communities. So that's where you often will pay a lump sum, often six figures or more. Mm -hmm. Normally, people will sell their house and buy into these communities. You may start out in an independent level of care, and then as you're skill or your needs transition, Mm -hmm. then the community transitions with you. So then you go into assisted living, then you go into memory care, then you go into skilled nursing, but you always are in that one community. There are a lot of great options here locally for many clients that's cost prohibitive for them though. So then we look at assisted living facilities and that's designed to help people with transportation, medication management, housekeeping, other activities of daily living. Provide them, you know, three meals a day, that home-like setting even though you're not at home. The average cost or the median cost of an assisted living facility, according to Genworth in 2021, was 4300 a month. And then we've got the memory care that's specific for Alzheimer's and dementia patients. They provide assistance with activities of daily living, but also programs to help design with slowing the progression of memory loss. 24-7 security, because oftentimes elopement is an issue, anti-wandering type devices. And then your skilled nursing facilities, right? The around-the-clock care, the, the thing that's closest to hospital-level mm-hmm. style of care, rehab, medical nursing, um, some recreational activities, certainly meals and housekeeping and all of that, but more of a clinical-type setting. And the average cost of these, according to Genworth, is about $8,000 a month. And then you've got hospice, either in a hospice facility, in a hospital setting that has hospice rooms, or in a nursing home or at home. How did you know, kind of kind of outline for us, at what point did you determine that your parents could no longer live at home, and then they first went to an assisted living facility, both of them, right? Right, yeah, they went together. Okay. Um, a few years prior to that, they had, uh, my dad was always the type, took care of his own yard, never a service person at the house, you know, he took care of everything. Uh, and then it got to the point, his back was giving him so much trouble, he couldn't take care of the house anymore. So they moved um, in 2007. We for, And th- this was not a difficult discussion. We said, just sell the house and move close to one of us. And this was not a um, big ordeal, as I know as it is is for some family where the parents just won't budge. You know, they're not going to, they're going to stay put. This is where they've lived. Um, They know everything. Um, You know, they're not going to budge. So your parents were amenable to? Absolutely. You know, yeah, sure. So, I mean, so that was very good because they they saw this was going to be the best option because we, my sister or I, we we would be stepping in to help with any emergency that popped up. So it's not helpful if they're a few hours away, you know, to I mean, how are you going to manage that? Right. And um, so anyway, so they sold their house and they moved near me. And I mean, to an apartment complex, actually, that was just about a mile from my home. How old were they at that point? Uh, my, uh, let's see, um, 
Hold on. My dad was, um, oh gosh, early, early 80s, I guess my mom, and my mom was a little older than my dad. Um, so I think it was like 80, my dad would have been 81, my mother would have been 85 okay. at the time they moved. And, um, and that worked great for the next four years. They were, again, on their own. They, you know, had their car. My dad was the one who did the driving, and, you know, they were able to take care of themselves. I started going to doctor's appointments with them along the way when I realized nobody's asking any questions, you know, yes. and my mom wouldn't wear her hearing aids. And you'd come, she'd come home, and I, you know, ask her what she, you know, well, I don't know what he said, you know, I, you know, well, mom. I'm experiencing oh, that now. Oh, my gosh, you know. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <sighs> So anyway, um, so I started going to doctors' appointments, advocating, asking some questions. You know, they'd come out, they would have asked nothing. You know, they were just of that generation. You know, but anyway, so I started going to appointments. But other than that, other than that, uh, they were taking care of themselves. And then one morning, my dad had a stroke. The day before, he had driven them to, uh, driven my mom to. Publix and they went out to lunch and did their usual thing and the next morning he had a stroke and so that changed everything on a dime um he lost his cognitive skills you know so um so anyway so they were they continued to live in the apartment and um and my mom you know at that point was 89 when my dad had the stroke and so she was she was in good health but she was 89 right and she was the caregiver um, and I, I was going over every day um, and taking care of, you know, all kinds of running around and, and, and stuff like that. But she was the one who was there. Um, and uh, I guess they lived that way for about a year or so. And then my dad, um, gradually, he started falling more. We were going to the ER multiple times, you know how yes. that is. Yep. and hospitalizations and and so forth and so then we realized okay they they can't be in there on Safely their own anymore. anymore right and uh, we toyed with the idea you know possibly could they go live with my sister and brother-in-law you know or me it, that was not gonna they needed full-time right. assistance really so that's that's the point that we decided that they would go to assisted living okay and how long were they in there together before your dad had to transition to the nursing home care and and what triggered that uh they were in there almost exactly two years together before my dad um and what triggered that was just as my dad declined um he was no longer able to feed himself or take care of um bathroom issues and that is as you know the standard for assisted living and um, so there was a fall and he ended up in the hospital and then so so he's so he's out for a couple of days and the assisted living facility would not take him back because he wasn't able to care for himself so we had to um, find a nursing home place for him and the spot the place that we wanted um we had to wait for a spot to open up and the assisted living facility would not take him back um unless I had 24-hour care there because this is this is an aspect that people don't know yes assisted living facilities do not provide 
24-hour care. They do not. And that was an education for us. We did not know exactly how assisted living facilities worked. Right. So, um, so anyway, they, so we had to hire on our own and there's no Medicare reimbursement for this. No. And people think there is, there is not. And, um, so we had to hire, um, round the clock care for him in order to go back to assisted, you know, and here, here's the thing too, Vanessa, like the, the hospital saying, Hey, he's being discharged. Right. Uh, they're either, kicking him out. They're either this afternoon or tomorrow, him. you know, and you think you're going back, you know, we're, we're going to go back. And then you find out all of a sudden in a phone call, well, no, he can't come back because unless you have care. So he's either got to go to, uh, your home or someplace else you know, it's kind of cruel. You it know, is. it's kind of cold. You know, and and you're finding this out all of a sudden and trying to manage and 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 the hospital's saying he's he's going tomorrow afternoon and locating appropriate caregiver locating, in that amount of time. Locating, that's right. You know, I mean, it's frantic, and you can't. And and the other thing, you can't do that ahead of time. You no. know, I'm talking about having the documents in place. Well, right. this is one of those things you can't you can't plan, plan you can't for. do this ahead of time. Right. You have to deal with it in the moment. Exactly. So. Um, so anyway, we had to have um, 24-hour care that I got from an agency um, to go to the assisted living place, you know, and stay in their room. I mean, you know, three shifts, three shifts a day. Um, we had to do that for about seven weeks. And so it was, it was over. Very expensive. It, well, yeah, I was going to say, I wrote checks for over $20,000. Until um, the slot opened up Until the, the slot home. opened up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was eye-opening. Right. Yeah, nobody. And and when you made the choice for that facility, I mean, because a lot of times clients are struggling, which is the appropriate facility? Assisted living facilities, they don't really have the same level of inspections like nursing homes do. There's right. the Agency for Healthcare Administration here in Florida, ACA, has their ACA surveys. So if somebody was trying to compare one nursing home to another, they could go to that website and see how they've been graded over the years with cleanliness and responsiveness and a whole host of other categories. And then the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS at the national level, has something similar called Care Compare. You can go to their website and put in the facility name. How did you pick the particular facility? How did you know? Did you go by recommendation? Well, that's that's kind of... Um, we did visit a, a couple of three places and, and just, you know, ruled them out. Um, and we ended up deciding, and all this was very quick. I mean, you know, right. this was like in 24 to 36 hours that we did this. Um, and we ended up going with the facility where um, we knew a couple of other families. Uh, their parents, you know, one of their parents were there, um, and we knew the adult children involved. And so they spoke well of it and so that so we ended up pursuing that okay good it's always good to have a yeah good referral. oh yeah i mean as opposed to just you know almost picking the name out of a hat right you know, it's just yeah so it is good if you can have you know some kind of a recommendation but that's not always possible exactly i want to talk more about medicare 
because you touched on it. Mm -hmm. What is Medicare? What does it cover? Right. So Medicare is federal health insurance for the elderly or disabled. It is not needs based. It's open to anyone 65 or older. I want to go over the different types of parts. So there's Medicare Part A. So retirees 65 plus who receive Social Security receive Part A coverage at no cost. That covers inpatient hospital care, home health care, limited amount, hospice care, and limited skilled nursing care. And I'll go over in a little bit exactly yeah, how limited, limited is, that is. is the operative word there. I mean, I, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting they're doing something wrong. It's just the perception is, right. especially of, say, the adult children who've never been through this, and even, even the people themselves, but the perception is Medicare is paying for all this stuff. And it does pay for a lot, but there's also an, a lot associated with elder care that it does not pay for. Exactly. And it's, it's private pay or you go without. That's right. And Part B coverage only covers you know, outpatient care, physicians, x-rays, medical equipment. That does have a premium associated with it, and that's this year $164.90 a month. That just comes out of their Social Security payment each month. Then Part C is those Medicare Advantage plans, and that covers many of the same benefits a Medigap policy would cover, and it covers extra days in the hospital. Part D, of course, is your prescription drug coverage. So. When we talk about long-term care, and in particular skilled nursing care, Medicare covers this on a short-term basis, and we'll talk exactly how many days in a minute, but all of these conditions have to apply first. You have Part A, and then you have to have a qualifying inpatient hospital stay, like your dad, right? Mm -hmm. They were releasing him from the hospital. Doesn't it have to be three days? So yes. That's, that is key, too. We found that out along the way. Yes. Was that if, there, if to go in the hospital, like, for a day or two. Not enough. Not enough. Three days, three days. And it can't just be for observational status. They have to be admitted. Yes. For some kind of condition. There right. has to be some sort of treatment that's been performed on them, not just observation. And like you said, has to be three days, at least three days to have that qualifying stay. And then of course your doctor has to decide that they need a skill level of care. And then they have to indicate that in writing and that you get these skilled services in a Medicare certified skilled nursing facility. And that either you need the services for that hospital related condition or a condition that started while you were in the nursing home or the hospital. So now, what does it cover exactly? Days one through 20, it'll cover it 100%, mm -hmm. 20 days. And then at day 21, you start paying a copay, and that copay is up to $200 a day. And then at day, that goes through day 100, maybe, not all the time, I think in your dad's case, it did. we did go the full 100 days of Medicare coverage. I think we did. Mm -hmm. But I've had some clients where basically if they plateau mm -hmm. and they're not showing any real improvement with the therapies, they'll cut them off. Uh, average is like 30 days. So let's say you make it to 100 like your dad did. Day 101, he's full on private pay. Medicare is not paying anything else anymore towards the long-term care costs. That did happen somewhere along the line with my dad. Um, I can't remember specifics, but I remember, um, I mean, now that you're mentioning it, right. and I haven't thought about this in a few years, but, you know, hearing the fact that um, he doesn't qualify for, you know, this therapy anymore because there's not going to be any 
improvement, improvement. that they could see. Yeah. yeah. And that's really at the crux of Blindsided, right? The series that you did, because people think, oh, I've got Medicare. It'll it'll cover the cost of all of these. Things. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the crux of it is um, going back to what I said at the beginning is, you know, how everything works, right. you know, how, how the system works. But it is true. Um, but I mean, that is the basis part of it. I begin with that, uh, that Medicare, there's a whole lot that Medicare does not cover. Mm -hmm. And people are under the assumption that it will cover. I've heard people say, I'm sure you have too. um, Well, you know, say they're talking about their parents. Um, Well, you know, we'll we'll just do assisted living next. And they have no idea that that is all private pay. Exactly. And they are under the assumption that Medicare will pay for assisted living and it does not pay for that at all and I'm sure you get clients coming in all the time uh maybe adult children coming in expecting you know some crisis has happened which is usually how it works you know some crisis there's been some episode a moment of truth and we've got to make a plan here and they come in to you and thinking that assisted living is an option only to find out it is not if they don't have the financial resources to pay for it. Exactly. And we're going to talk about, since Medicare doesn't cover, what can cover long-term care costs and skilled nursing facilities, Medicaid is an option for the assisted living facilities. The coverage is not immediate because of a wait list. Right. And so the nursing homes are often the better option if they need that level of care. Right. Because the coverage isn't there, even on the state side, for assisted living facilities. Before we get to Medicaid, I want to talk about veterans' benefits. Because Medicaid is considered the payer of last resort. So if there's any possibility that you're eligible for another type of benefit, like VA benefits, they want you to exhaust those possibilities first, or at least prove that you tried. Mm -hmm. And so I know we had to do that with your dad, right? right? You and Diane were going to get the VA application file, and we had to show proof of that application. So there's three types of special monthly pensions through the VA. The first is a low-income pension. Then there's a housebound pension and an aid in attendance pension. And the aid in attendance is the one that we typically use for folks when they're trying to help alleviate the cost of an ALF or home health care. Um, because this is not a welfare program. Mm-hmm. And the way this works is there's criteria, basic eligibility criteria for any of these pensions. So you have to serve at least one day during a wartime period. And they have very specific dates as to when those are. So World War I is April 6, 1917 to November 11, 1918. World War II, December 7, 1941 to December 31, 1946. Korean conflict, June 27, 1950 to January 31, 1955. I had a gentleman serve in Korea, but it was not within that window of time, Mm. so he wasn't eligible. Um, Vietnam era, February 28, 1961 to May 7, 1975 for veterans who actually served in Vietnam, otherwise August 5, 1964 to May 7, 1975. So one day during one of those wartime periods, 90 days on active duty, and then you have to be honorably discharged 
and you have to be able to show proof of that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you all had to scrounge up was the DD-214, which is the discharge papers. Right, also called separation papers. Yes, for my, separation my dad's papers, because he was, was called World separation, War II. World so. War II, it was called separation papers, and now it goes by that number. Yes, yeah. and were you, did you all have difficulty finding that, or was that I in the briefcase? That was in the briefcase. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm telling you, that was just, it was just wonderful, um, because... Um, because there would be plenty of people who have no idea where to find such a paper. They wouldn't even know if it existed exactly. in their parents' documents, um, wouldn't know what they were looking for at all. And that paper is key to applying. I mean, not that you don't need other things, too. Right. But without that, I gather you're not going anywhere exactly. with the VA. So you must have that, that document, yes. which was one piece of paper. Um, but it was in that briefcase. So for us, it was as simple as opening up the briefcase, and there it was. But I, I, I can't even imagine what we would have done or, and what you know people do. I mean, you can find it, but yes. it's going to take a lot of work. Absolutely. So then you have to have limited income and assets, and you have to be 65 or older or totally and permanently disabled or receiving care in a nursing home or receiving social security disability insurance or supplemental security income because that means the social security administration has declared you disabled and then of course you have to apply and i know you all worked with one of our local veterans service organizations those are um, they provide application services to veterans free of charge right they're tasked by the veterans administration and staffed largely with retired veterans themselves, I think the gentleman mm -hmm. you worked with. Mm -hmm. And so they helped you all complete the application and submit it on behalf of your dad, right? Um, yes, uh, but they didn't do the application. Okay. You know, so it's not like they're filling it out for you, we're taking care of it for you. Um, you have to do the legwork. Right. And there was a lot of, of that involved. Um, and, um, I, and actually my sister, uh, took care of that aspect. She was the one who met with the VA, but I was getting, you know, updates every day. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, you know, they were, they were helpful. He, he could, he could guide, he could lead, but he's not filling it out for you. And in our case, uh, because we had the documents that were needed, um, you know, he was, he didn't even have to be asked, well, you know, how do we go about finding this document or finding right. that or whatever, you know, so he didn't, ha I'm sure he would have been helpful in that regard in, in uh, directing us if we had needed that, but, but we had the, we had the proof and like, um, uh, you know, you have to produce other things besides those separation papers, yes. but all kinds, uh, you would know better than I would, but, uh, you know, we had the marriage certificate, we had to produce that. Um, they're all all assets of any kind of any kind you know you had to produce all sources of income all sources of income outgoing you know where's money going where you know what's what's coming in um so again a lot of documentation but we did that yes and kind of talking about the assets and income side there are financial eligibility requirements so they're looking at yearly family income and that it must be less than the amount set by Congress to qualify. So each year Congress sets the amount, it's the maximum allowed pension rate. And so depending on which program you apply for, those amounts are set. 
Um, so, and whether or not you have a spouse or a child affects it because it's there's amounts for a veteran with no dependents and then amounts for a veteran with at least one dependent. And when they're determining what your countable income is, they're looking at your earnings, they're looking at your disability and retirement payments, they're looking at interest and dividends because I know your parents had stocks and so all of that was kind of calculated into the mix. I mean, every every penny, every penny, every penny is calculated. Yes. I mean, it's not round at all. It's no. every penny is calculated. And then the difference between the countable income that you have and the limit set by Congress is that pension amount that you could potentially be eligible to receive. And there are certain things that they will allow to reduce your countable income. And the most significant is what we call these UMEs unreimbursed medical expenses. So this is where they're asking all the information about, okay, what have you paid out of pocket? Because we're gonna reduce your income by all of those medical expenses that you've had to pay. And it's anything that exceeds 5% above that maximum allowed pension rate, medical expenses above that may be deducted from your income. And therefore that increases the amount of pension you could possibly receive. And then if there's educational expenses or working child's wages, if you have a dependent child. So then they look at the asset side. Now, when we did this with your dad, there wasn't a bright line number in terms of an asset limit, they've changed that. Mm. Um, back then it was more, they kind of did this analysis of, okay, what's your life expectancy? What do you have in the way of assets? Is it possible that you could very well outlive the assets that you have available to you? If so, we're gonna award you pension if you're otherwise eligible to receive it. That's changed. Now they actually have a bright line. They do a net worth eligibility calculation. And so that changes from year to year what that number is. And this year it's $150,538. So if you have 121,000 in assets and then you've got $14,000 in income, your net worth now is 135 you're eligible because you're below that 150,000. And some assets don't count, um, like your homestead property, your car, appliances, but there's a very small list compared to Medicaid, where mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about a lot of different things don't count. Medi uh, VA has a very small list. The other thing they implemented in 2018, which didn't apply with your dad, was they look back now at any transfers that were made. Medicaid has done that for a while. right? VA never did. Now VA does too, oh. and they look at a three-year period instead of a five, like Medicaid does. And so if you've made transfers for less than fair market value, they're gonna penalize you for those. Um, now once you're awarded, this was the killer, right? You go through all this exercise, mm -hmm. right? Let's say you get awarded something. If you're single and you go into a nursing home, then your VA benefit reduces to $90. A month mm. that's it in your dad's case he didn't even really qualify he didn't qualify he was uh, turned down because he exceeded the um, the, the the asset income yes, analysis. the asset income yeah mm -hmm. so we go through that process finally to get to the Medicaid process so in Florida we have multiple Medicaid programs that are designed to help for long-term care costs 
The first is the institutional care program. And that's the one that we would typically file under for skilled nursing. That's what we did for your dad. And this program has coverage immediately available provided you are financially and medically eligible. And I'm gonna go over what those qualifications are in a moment. Um, if you're awarded coverage, then the coverage begins the month in which the application is filed. Because you recall, even after we filed the application, it took a while yeah. mm -hmm. for them to process few, it. A few months, I mm -hmm. guess, right? So then once it's awarded, they make it retroactive to the first date of the month when you applied for the benefits. Now, most facilities, like your dad's, <clears throat> will say, okay, he's on Medicaid pending. We file the application. We're waiting on Department of Children and Families to process it. They'll switch him over to Medicaid pending status, and now you're paying what we've determined to be his patient responsibility as a Medicaid recipient. I had one facility tell a client, no, you're paying private pay. Mm. The full amount until, until we get an approval. Oh, wow. And then when you get an approval, we'll reimburse you, which creates a whole nother host of problems because then you're over asset limit and everything else. But most facilities, when they know you've applied and you could show proof of application, they'll switch you over to Medicaid pending like your dad's mm -hmm. did. Because it's actually taking longer to process applications now than it did back then, I'm, sadly. I'm, I'm gonna guess it was maybe say three months mm -hmm. or something. And they have this policy that they're supposed to process them within 45 days, but it doesn't work out to be the case. Mm. And one of the issues that we have is that the medical assessments that the state has to perform on the individual don't get completed in a timely manner. And so the application gets held up because of that as well. Then there's a Medicaid hospice program. That's only for people who are expected to live six months or less as determined by a physician. And then there's a home and community-based services, and these are waiver-type programs. Now, this is what I was alluding to earlier. These are not funded by the federal government. They're funded by the state. And because of state budgetary woes, we don't have sufficient funding available for those. So they've come up with this wait list concept. And there's over 45,000 people statewide on a wait list for this type of coverage, even if they're financially and medically eligible. Mm. And so they have to be assessed by their local area office on aging here in Central Florida. It's the Senior Resource Alliance. And the assessor will come in and make a determination as to how bad the person's condition is. And depending on where they score, that determines their slot on the wait list. So if you're significantly impaired, you may be on the wait list for a shorter period of time than someone else. I've got clients that have been on the wait list for years. Oh, wow. So that is the challenge with assisted living facilities because they fall under that waiver program. Same thing if you were trying to get care at home. That's where the VA becomes helpful if you qualify. qualify. Mm -hmm. And that's the big if. Now, of course, Marty and I are talking today about Florida-type programs as I'm about to delve into these with her. So these vary from state to state. You need to consult with a professional in your state to get guidance on Medicaid application process and procedures in your state. And certainly they vary from Medicaid program to program. But these criteria that we're going to go over today are applicable to all of those types of long-term care Medicaid programs. The basic re eligibility requirements, you have to be 65 or older, 
or if you're under 65, you have to be disabled or blind. You have to be a U.S. citizen, qualified non-citizen, like a green card holder, current resident of Florida. You have to have a social security number or at least file for one. And again, you have to apply for all other possible benefits that you could be eligible for, whether that's VA, pension, long-term care insurance, disability benefits. And then there's the medical side of it. So the Department of Elder Affairs has to come out, and this is where we've been seeing more and more in the way of delays. They have to come out and do a medical assessment. They did this for your dad, and he, of course, they confirmed that he needed a skill level of care. But they have an agency called CARES, which stands for Comprehensive Assessment and Review for Long-Term Care Services. They will go out and determine the level of care that is needed and what the appropriate placement is. So as long as they say, yes, they need an intermediate level of care or custodial care or they need a skill level of care, now you've qualified for one of those long-term care programs. And the ICP, we, we typically see skill level of care being required because that's the skilled nursing home setting. What they're looking at when they perform those assessments is how many of the activities of daily living can be performed without significant impairment. Mm. And so they figure that at least four out of the six, you're gonna need help with in order to qualify. So eating, bathing, dressing, transferring yourself from a sitting to a standing position or laying down, toileting, incontinence, those are the things they're looking at. And then if you have a cognitive impairment, how impaired your decision-making is, what is limiting your ability to live independently and safely. Then we look at the financial side of things. This is where you and Diane had to gather all the records, right? And mm -hmm. then you had to go through this process of liquidating, converting certain assets in order to get him financially eligible. Because we were trying to protect my, my mother. I mean, exactly. I, I mean, we still had to provide for her, I should right. say. Exactly. Yeah. So now for 2023, the income cap is higher than it was. They make cost of living adjustments than when your dad went through this, but $2,742 is the amount of income that you can receive each month and still qualify for this long-term care Medicaid coverage. Now, if you're over that, it's not doom and gloom. We could do something called a qualified income trust, and I'll explain what that is in a few minutes. How they get at that number, the 2,742, they look at what Social Security pays for its welfare benefit, the SSI benefit, and that gets adjusted each year as well. This year it's 914. They multiply that by three. That's how they get the Medicaid income cap for Florida. Florida is one of a limited number of states that actually has a cap. A lot of states do not have income caps, mm, but Florida that. does. So countable income, they look at, just like you said with the VA, they look at everything, right? They look at social security, pensions, dividends, rental income. Sometimes I'll have clients with these random oil and gas lease interests that they inherited from mm -hmm. a family member. That counts, those royalties. Any distributions they get from trusts, do they get annuity payments? Do they get RMDs from their retirement accounts? Are they getting alimony, child support payments? Certain VA benefits, the aid and attendance benefit is not considered countable income. The trick is though, we gotta get the VA to break that down in a letter 
saying this is what the base pension is, this is what the housebound is, this is what the aid in attendance, this is for unreimbursed medical expenses, good luck getting that letter from them. It's tough. <laughs> I've had one or two clients where they've been successful in getting that, but normally they just say, here's your VA benefit. If there's no breakdown, Medicaid treats it all as countable income. Oh, wow. Um, and then long-term care insurance, if you get benefits from those, they count that as income, indemnity policies, interest income, and any income that you receive regularly. It also includes deductions. I can't remember if we had this issue with your dad. So a lot of times clients will have their tax withholding you know, withheld from certain distributions. That's still countable income to them. So we normally turn the withholdings off and then just have them pay the tax bill when it comes. Because even though they're not getting the income, Medicaid is treating it as them getting the income. Similarly, if you have income that's being garnished or subject to an IRS lien or Part B premiums, they're counting all of that, even though that's not hitting your bank account. And I remember we had that conversation, the gross income versus the net income that you actually mm -hmm. see. So that's a big, big distinction there. Now, the good yeah, news. They don't miss a trick. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. And kind of talking about making sure your mom is sufficiently provided for, one thing in Florida, they do not count a spouse's income towards an applicant's eligibility. So your mother's income, even though I know it was modest on, in her own right, they that was not going to affect your father's eligibility for Medicaid. Mm -hmm. um, and so regardless of how big or small it is. Now, we can reduce the countable income by certain permissible deductions. The personal needs allowance. I don't think this has increased since we did it with your dad, $130 a month. Was that what it was? At one point it was 90, and then it finally went up to 130. Yeah, uh, it was about that. It yeah. was it was modest. It's you know. been stuck there. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. still at 130. Mm -hmm. That's what they get to have for a little allowance each month and be on Medicaid. Health insurance premiums, so his Medicare supplement, um, if there is Part B. A lot of times when you qualify for Medicaid, then Medicaid will pick up the cost of the Part B premium. That's in part why they don't take a deduction for that um, when they're calculating your countable income. But if for some reason you have to keep paying that because you make so much income a month, then they will allow that to be deducted when determining what you owe to the nursing home each month. Um, and then in the case of your mom, we were able to do an income allowance to her. And so that's where we look at how much income she has in her own column and if she falls below what the state has set to be the minimum income allowance, which she did, then we're able to reroute and divert your dad's income over to her. And we were actually able to do that with all of your dad's income that was left after we took those other permissible deductions because your mom's income was modest in her own right. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that diversion, he didn't have to pay anything to the nursing home. Medicaid picked up, because I went back and I looked at well, this. Well, yeah, because they were nearly wiped out before. I know, I know. <laughs> And that is another point of this, why someone is even applying for Medicaid in the first place. 
if you're and you're only doing that again we're talking about long-term care because this is not applying to assisted living it's only applying to, to skilled, skilled nursing, nursing. Exactly. that's right so what this was another eye-opening episode for um my family um we did not realize that they had to pay out of pocket for the nursing home when my dad went into the nursing home and this this applies to people and and they may not realize it you pay personally if you have any assets you pay first until you are essentially running out of assets and so that was what was happening with my dad um and it was about 8500 a month yes for the nursing home and um private pay because medicare after day 100 was not helping so medicare is not involved in skilled nursing right so once you go to skilled nursing you you are paying for it if you have assets right um and so you know money's flying out the window um and quickly quickly going and at that point and my mother had you know been in good health she was in her early 90s by that point we hadn't spent a dime on my mom for anything and you know we um so we had to be cognizant of that um so that's about the time that we came to you yes. because um that is the time that we came to you because uh money's flying out the wind and you know there, there's there's going to be zero left and in fact what happened was it had to uh we dev- what you had us do we, you know obviously how legal there's no question about that but i mean yes these are can, all legal yeah, techniques that's right. we're these going over today yeah. <laughs> yeah i didn't mean you know I'm okay a little levity here in the midst of this um so we had to divide the uh, we divided everything up so uh, we had uh under their previous planning estate planning everything was joint everything was joint right so now we're dividing everything up so that my dad's name was taken off all of their uh, assets any bank accounts stock account whatever it was his name was removed from it so that when you're submitting the medicaid application and you're showing what assets he has yes he ha- he's allowed you are allowed two thousand dollars is that still the two case two thousand of countable assets of countable that's right. so that's um so that's what we had to do we had to spend the money down until a certain amount was left for the spouse which is allowable like 120,000 or right. whatever it so is so that's that's increased it's up to 148,620 okay well still you know you can um reserve that for for the spouse but um you had we you know we had to spend it and and you had come to me at, at that point you had already spent like you said a lot of it on the care and 8500 a month 8500 plus a month. my mom was in assisted living and she was paying what about 4000 at that time it was about 3000 okay so i was writing checks for about 11500 a month um between the two of them um and like there was now, if there had been no money, you would, would you'd automatically be applying for Medicaid. Right. But you wouldn't if have to you, do any planning. But here's, here's the thing that people don't realize. If you have assets, you do have to spend those down first. Or use one of the legal techniques that we'll talk about today. Yeah. Right. Um, but yes, because you, if you have more than $2,000 in countable assets, then you're not going to be eligible. So what counts and what doesn't count? So 
if you and that 2000 I did want to mention if you make less than a thousand sixty nine a month in income you get five thousand countable asset limit instead of two right and then if you're a couple and you're both applying for Medicaid at the same time you get three thousand for your countable asset limit and then if you're a couple and you have income less than 1446 you get 6000 for your countable asset limit. And then what you talked about was the community spouse resource allowance. So what assets don't count? A house. So if you're single, you're applying for Medicaid, as long as you indicate on the application that you have an intent to return to that house, even if it's not medically possible that you could ever do so, the house is a non-countable asset. As long as the equity does not exceed, they have an equity limit each year. This year it's 688000 mm. So for most folks, they fall under that. If you have a house and you have a spouse living in the house or a disabled child living in the house, that also doesn't count. Um, a vehicle, regardless of its value, doesn't count. You can have another vehicle or additional vehicles if they're seven years older or more and they're not luxury or collector type vehicles. 2,500 designated for burial expenses, which we had done that, mm -hmm. that burial expense account that you could set aside irrevocable prepaid cremation plans. So we had to make sure in your parents' case, because they had already set that up, we had to make it irrevocable. So I think y'all had to go back to the funeral home, right, and mm -hmm. get the irrevocable rider, because mm -hmm. Medicaid wants to be sure that at no point in time they can't cash that out and get money for it. And then separately from that, if you have burial spaces or plots for yourself, for your spouse, for your immediate family, none of that counts. If you have life insurance, term doesn't count because there's no cash value to it. If the policy has cash value and the face value is more than 2,500, now we're talking about counting the cash value. We can take a loan against it, which I did that with one client once where they took a loan against the policy to basically buy down the cash value and get them to a point where they could be under the 2,000 limit. Retirement funds do not count as long as you're getting regular income from them. So when you have an IRA, the value, you could have a million dollar IRA. As long as you're getting RMDs from that, they're not gonna count the million dollars in your column. They're only gonna count the income that you're getting. And then income producing properties. So a lot of times clients will take, if they've got cash or money in a brokerage account, that's countable. But if they take that money and they buy rental property with it, now the value of the rental property doesn't count, just the income counts. So they're making an investment there. Um, all of that is permissible under the law. Then transfers. You talked about transferring assets to your mom. That's permissible. They allow for spouses to transfer assets between each other. What they don't allow is for parents to transfer money to their kids. To try and hide the money. Exactly. So I remember in your situation with your parents, you and Diane had been on their bank accounts to help write checks and right. pay bills. Mm -hmm. If we then took your dad off of those 
and you and Diane and your mom stayed on there, then it made it look like he was making a gift in part to you and Diane. And that's not allowed. So our names came off. So a few years before, under the other, you know, estate planning, we went to the banks to get our names added on and, right. and all that. And then a few years later, here we are taking, taking them off. Mom. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we had to take you off first uh -huh. before he came off. And normally we'll just have him be on the account where he gets his social security. And then everything else just goes into your mom's name. And we had to liquidate stock and stuff yeah. with your parents and get everything kind of in a single account. Now, if you make transfers when you're talking about spending things down, certainly paying for medical expenses, facility expenses, they don't mind if you do that, right? If you want to pay your bills, if you have credit card debts, if you need repairs at your house, you can do those sorts of things. If you're single, it's not recommended that you buy a new house on the eve of going into a facility. <laughs> Because they'll question that, they'll scrutinize that. But if you have a spouse or a disabled child and you decide to buy a new home and they're going to continue to live there, that's less scrutinized and that's permitted. Um, certainly making burial arrangements, buying a new car, um, paying for attorney's fees, CPA fees, all of that is permissible in terms of transfers. Um, setting up special needs trusts. We didn't have to do this with your dad, but sometimes people are over limit, and so there's something called a pooled trust. That's a particular type of special needs trust. For many years, Florida has allowed people over the age of 65 to transfer assets into that trust. The reason why it's called pooled is because each disabled individual gets their own account, but the accounts are pooled for investment purposes and they're run by a nonprofit organization. So it's not like a lawyer drafts the trust agreement. The individual or their power of attorney just joins the trust. And that's where the power of attorney becomes important because it has to have that superpower that allows them the ability to do that. And the other types of government benefits planning that you and Diane did. And just I'll put in a plug here for power of attorney. Uh, we needed that when they went into the hospital. Yes. You know, so it's not just for these you know, final documents care. it was along the way we had and they had given us that and so that made hospital admissions easy yes because i had the power of attorney My and you had the health care surrogate too. yes we had all that and they asked for those as soon as you're admitted to the hospital and i had not had hardly any hospital experience before my mom and dad started you know having to go and all and of course you're thrust into it in an emergency situation right but um i'm just saying that, that just jogged my memory that uh, the, the importance of, of that yeah, document right is important to have all along absolutely and from the income side of things the way they figure out how much income can get diverted to the community spouse is they've got this set minimum and then in addition to that, they allow for what they call excess shelter costs. So they have a standard utility allowance, which has been set at $366 for quite a while now. And then you can add to that what the spouse has to pay for mortgage, taxes, homeowners insurance, um, those sorts of things. And then they have to be reduced by a certain amount. And then they look at all the spouse's income sources 
and they reduce it further by that. And if the spouse doesn't have enough income to meet all of that, that's what we're able to divert. And so in your mom's case, we were able to divert all that income. So after we applied and he was awarded benefits, you were paying how much a month, you said, 8,500 a month? Uh-huh. And then you went down to paying zero a month. Right, right. Once Medicaid Once took Medicaid over, we weren't paying took over. anything. Exactly. And your mom was able to have the assets that remained. Mm-hmm. And then she was able to have her own income and his income that we were able to divert over to her. Mm-hmm. So that's where the savings is. I mean, once the Medicaid benefits are awarded, you could see in a matter of months how much you're saving in the way of expenses. And that's why it's such a critical well, we were going to run out. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, now, the look back again for Medicaid is five years. And so the way they determine the penalty period is, let's say you made a gift of $100,000 to a child within that five-year period. They're going to take that 100000 and they're going to divide it by a divisor. And that divisor changes every so many years. Right now, it's set at $10,809. That's the average cost of nursing home care in the state of Florida today. And so you would divide a month. it a month. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so you would divide it by that amount, and that's the number of months that you'd be penalized. And when they start that penalty clock, it's the day that you're otherwise eligible. So it doesn't start from when you made the gift three or four years ago. It starts when you file the application and you're otherwise eligible for benefits. So that's how many months that you would be ineligible because of that gift. So Marty, can you think of anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners? Um, about your experience and advice. And as you said, you and Diane were such fierce advocates for your dad. I know we were just about to start the process, the Medicaid process for your mom, because she wound up transitioning as well Mm -hmm. from assisted living into nursing home care, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, and we were about ready to um, apply for Medicaid, and she passed away. I was going to say that um, these were the most challenging years of my life, caring for them, but they were also the most rewarding. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so thankful. That you had that time with them. That I had that time. Um, And I always think I'm not going to get emotional about it, and I always do. Of course. Um, But I was so thankful during those years that I had the health myself to manage all of these things for them. Um, because I thought, who would be doing this for mom and dad? You know, you know, you're talking about just managing life, you know, um, paying, paying bills, managing doctor's appointments, manage, just managing life is what it came down to. You know, you're not even talking about any grand thing, just day to day living, um, you were overseeing. And I was thankful I, um, was at a place in in my work life that um, allowed me the freedom uh, to leave when I needed to leave, and there were many times that I, you know, had to jump up from my desk and and go take care of something, and you know, maybe go to the hospital or something. I'm I'm just saying they were they were the most challenging, uh, I guess, stressful years of my life, but also the most rewarding, and I'm thankful for the time that I had. Um, again, I would stress, and I know my sister, if she were here, she would be saying the same thing. Get your documents 
together, gather those together so that you're not rushing around in a panic, which is what will happen if you don't get them together ahead of time. Right. You'll be in some episode, some you know stressful situation, trying to locate this information quickly and you won't be able to do it you know and so if you can all at all have that conversation with your parents if you're you know an adult child listening um or if uh if you're the parent to have that conversation with an adult child or adult children so that they have access to act in your behalf when that moment comes and um that is i just can't stress that enough you know to have uh, we didn't even have a plan so to speak. You know, I, I told you before, my parents probably thought, you know, a heart attack would take them or, you know, something like that. Never imagined, you know, the long-term care situation. So there was never a discussion of, uh, well, what they would like to do. So we, my sister and I were having to make these decisions, make it up as we went along, right. really. Um, which is what, which is why I ended up doing the program on Blindsided mm-hmm which can still be found on uh, YouTube. You can, in the search bar, you can just put Marty Salt, M-A-R-T-I-E, Salt, Blindsided, and both programs will pop up. Um, but it, I thought, I, and I originally did it thinking I was doing it for um, adult children, you know, but obviously it, it speaks to anybody. But I'm, I was just thinking there's, this is what you need to know. This is, this is what's coming. This is what's ahead. Um, doesn't have to be disastrous, but it's helpful if you have some conversations uh, and you can make some plans, some preliminary plans. Even if you don't get to follow those plans, um, you have some idea so that you are not quote unquote blindsided, which is the word that my sister and I used so many times in conversations uh, regarding my parents' care over the years was just absolutely blindsided because we had no idea. And that's, you really hit on the head because that's what this podcast is all about, the power of planning. Having those discussions, doing the advanced planning, making sure you've got the estate plan documents in place because if your parents didn't have the power of attorney in the healthcare surrogate, you'd be forced to go to the guardianship court. Oh, it's just crazy. It's just, it's, it's unimaginable. And yet many people are having to do that. Yes. And it is avoidable with some, you know, some advanced planning, some advanced planning that's not rocket science. Um, it's very helpful, but you know, even if you just put your documents in a briefcase under the bed, right? <laughs> you know? And let your kids know that, where to find that. Know where to find it. That I mean, that is the answer to a lot of life's problems at a very stressful time. And um, on the blindsided um, program that I did, one of the one of the um, major things that I kind of wanted to inform people about was um, was how assisted living facilities work you know how we talked about how Medicaid Medicare does not pay for that and people are under the impression that it does and it doesn't um, but also how just how they work it's and it's kind of a consumer's guide to how it works not that they're doing anything wrong but I liken it to uh, the um, car buying uh, experience nobody would go to a car dealership nowadays without having some preparation and some information before you walk 
onto the onto the lot you do your research you do your research and you have some information of how this is going to work and what you should pay and and this and that and what to expect of the dealership etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and it's the same thing with assisted living uh, facilities it's um, it's having an awareness of of uh, of, 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 of what the expectations should be and I know we were thinking assisted living oh well you go there and you know now everything's taken care of and that it that's really not how it works no and on the income side I did want to touch on before we ended that qualified income trust that I talked about so if you're over income and we didn't have to do this because your dad with the the amount going to your mom prevented this from being necessary but a lot of times when someone's single and there's no spouse to reroute the income to, they're over income. What happens now? You set up this qualified income trust. It's an irrevocable trust. If they're not capable of setting it up for themselves, this again is where the power of attorney can do it for them or if necessary, a court, if no one's authorized under any legal documents. And we fund it each month with at least the excess amount. Norm, whatever they are over that 2,742, that's got to go into that trust. And then they pay the personal needs allowance from there. They pay, if there is a spousal allowance, they pay that from there. And they pay the facility. And whatever's left in that trust at death goes to pay back Medicaid. So just like the pooled trust account that I mentioned earlier, there's a Medicaid payment requirement, a re, you know, reimbursement requirement at death with that. So there's a lot of different planning strategies. No one size fits all, like everything else. Right. It's all fact specific. It's all about, as unfortunately, like Marty said, people often come to see me when we're in crisis mode. Right. We're eating into the 100 days of Medicare. The facility's the telling the family ticking. the clock is ticking. The hospital's saying we're going to discharge them tomorrow. Exactly. And you have no idea what to do. Exactly. And so to the extent you can become familiar just generally with these types of planning concepts and some like an irrevocable trust you can establish, but you have to do it more than five years because it's considered a gift that triggers that penalty period. So it's really important to start having those conversations sooner rather than later. And just like you said, be aware of where the documents can be found. And certainly if there aren't any in place in terms of estate planning documents, get those in place. It would be very valuable in this, when we're talking about making plans, having a conversation, visit an elder law attorney to find out what we what do we need to do to put some plans into place exactly because and um because obviously we can't possibly cover everything you know in this one right. hour conversation or could anybody remember you know everything but to go have that conversation um is invaluable definitely well, Marty, I can't tell you how much I thank you and appreciate you for being here today. I feel like, you know, Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. All oh, thank these you. years well, of likewise. broadcasting. Likewise. Um, well, thank you very much. And um, you and are a credit to your profession. You well, just, thank you. Just very thorough. No stone left unturned. Everything went smoothly. Well, I, I can tell you, in all the years that I've worked with clients, you and your sister were just so devoted to your parents, making sure they got the care they received, 
that you were navigating all of these financial issues for them day and night. I knew that even though it was stressful and you were dealing with your own personal lives, right, on top of everything else, whatever I asked you or told you to do, you did it. And it, it, was, it was really inspiring to see that love, that sacrifice, that advocacy. And I, you know, I wasn't the least bit surprised when I saw you do Blindsided because I saw that passion in you and that desire to educate others about your experience and inspire others candidly. Well, thank you so much. Well, they were worth it. No. Well, thank you again, and um, please join us again next month. Um, I will be welcoming my litigation partner, Trip Cheek. He and I are going to talk about estate trust and guardianship disputes and kind of go over the most common types of disputes and the various planning considerations that you can do to mitigate the risk of these types of disputes occurring with you and your families. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vanessa.